So, chapter 5, the storm and what came of it. Uh, you, re- you recall, uh, and, uh, they, they, they left the Lone Islands. They uh, had to kind of work on restocking their ship, the Dawn Treader. They left the islands. They're, they're continuing to, to head, uh, looking for the seven, the seven lords. They found one on the Lone Island, Lord Byrne. So there's six left to find, so they're, they're selling away. Um, and basically what happens in chapter 5 is, is a fairly simple chapter. Uh, they're going to sail into a storm, and you're going to get nine diary entries from Eustace uh, about this journey. Uh, so if you look on first page of chapter 5, I just love the way the, the story is Painted here. It was nearly three weeks after their landing that the Dawn Treader, and we're going to talk today about that name, Dawn Treader. It was nearly three weeks after their landing that, that the Dawn Treader was towed out of Narrow Haven Harbor. Very solemn farewells had been spoken, and a great crowd had assembled to see her departure. There had been cheers and tears, too when Caspian made his last speech to the Lone Islanders and parted from the Duke, that was Lord Byrne, who now is ruling the islands, uh, and his family. But as the ship, her purple sail, purple. In Christian tradition, purple is always kind of the royal color, which what that becomes in Christian tradition is the color of bishops. Um, Even in the United Methodist tradition, Clergy can wear clergy shirts, but not purple. Only bishops wear purple. So you get, see the royalty um, of the color purple. It's not accidental that the color is purple. Her purple sail, still flapping idly, drew further from the shore, and the sound of Caspian's trumpet from, trumpet from the poop came fainter across the water. Everyone became silent. Then she came into the wind. The sail swelled out. The tug cast off and began rowing back. Uh, The first real wave ran up under the dawn treader's prow, um, and she was a live ship again. The men off duty went below. Drenian, the, the commander, took the first watch on the poop, and she, the dawn treader, turned her head eastward round the south of Arva. The next few days were delightful. Lucy, remember when you, when you grow up, I want us to be Lucy. Lucy, or Reepicheep. Um, we want to be Lucy and Reepicheep when we grow up. Lucy thought she was the most fortunate girl in the world as she woke up each morning to see the reflections of the sunlit water dancing on the ceiling of her cabin and looked around on all the nice new things she had got in the Lone Islands, sea boots and buskins and cloaks and gherkins and scarves. And then she would go out on deck and take a look from the... Say that word for me. Uh, no Navy people in the room and certainly no English people in the room. Folksal, thank you. That's the folksal. It is always fascinates me when I'm in England. Um, we do some of this when I'm in England, how they just lose syllables. They just go away. But what should be forecastle is folksal. Uh, anyway, took a look from the folksal at a sea. 
at, at a sea which was brighter blue each morning, drinking an air that was a little warmer day by day. After that came breakfast and such an appetite as one only has at sea. And then you get his picture of, uh, of, of, of Reepicheep playing chess. You know, he's, he's a little guy playing chess. You get that picture. Uh, you, you, you see, even at the end of the last paragraph on page 67, you know, as he's trying to play, as he's trying to play chess, his mind was full of forlorn hopes, death or glory charges, and last stands. Again, remember bravery. Courage. Uh, reap a cheap. Go back to the theme of this book. It is the spiritual life, especially, this is what C.S. Lewis said, it is the spiritual life, especially as represented in Reap a cheap. Uh, and Reap a cheap is the brave. He's the one that wants to go all the way into Aslan's world. Uh, so you're going to continue to see the bravery, the enthusiasm, the passion the fearlessness of Reepicheep. Um, anyway, so what happens if you turn the page? They're going to sail into a storm. Uh, let's talk about the name Dawn Treader. Let's talk about a ship for a moment. Let's do some Christian theology. Um, for three years, when I walked into Duke Divinity School, I walked in a door most of the time. I walked in a door... And above that door was an engraving of a ship. The ship is one of the oldest symbols for the Christian community. Uh, look at our sanctuary. When you look up, and I know that you know this, pretend that you know it anyway. When you look up in our sanctuary, you're looking at, an, at, at, at the hull of a ship. You're looking at the rafters of an overturned boat. That's where that architecture comes from. Um, the ship, um, and you can even think ark at this point, the ship and the ark um, were an old ancient symbol for the church. It's aboard this ship that we're going to get out of this world alive. It's aboard this ship uh, where we will make our journey. Uh, St. Augustine one time said, and he's talking about the ark, but again, ark ship, it kind of becomes one. And when you look at the engravings, it almost looks like an ark, but there's usually a sail on it. So it's kind of a, a, a combination of ship and ark. St. Augustine one time said, talking about the church and using the image of the ark, St. Augustine said one time, the, think about all the animals on the ark. St. Augustine said one time, the only way we can put up with the stench in the ark is because we see the storm outside of it. There's a few days each month I remind myself of that when I think about the church. Yeah, I mean, the church is not this haven of peacefulness. You know, if you have an, if you have an image of the church being like a monastery, I'd love to introduce you to some of my monastic friends who would tell you you have an idealized version of a monastery. Those people are trying to do life together in there. So yeah, get rid of your idealized version of the church. Get rid of your um, illusions about human nature. Uh, the church, the vessel, spends a lot of time in storms. So as you see the dawn treader heading into the storm, be thinking that. Now, look at the name dawn treader. 
You know, C.S. Lewis couldn't make it any more obvious the theology concerning the dawn treader. What is the dawn? The dawn is the coming of the new day. You know, that, that, that territory between the night and the new day. So when you name the ship the dawn treader, treader is that which treads, that which travels, we are traveling on the cusp of the old day and the new day. Now, C.S. Lewis is assuming you can connect the dots as to how that symbolizes the church. We are sailing together on the cusp of the old day and the new day. Uh, the kingdom has come in some ways, but the kingdom is still yet to come. We're not all the way into Aslan's world yet, but the dawn is happening. We're sailing toward the dawn, and in some ways we're even experiencing the dawn and the light. You know, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. In some ways we're experiencing some of the, the new day that's coming, but it's not here yet. So we're selling, we're the dawn treader. We're selling on that line between darkness and light. Again, make sure you got an appropriate image of the church. You know, I, I've always been amazed because I've hung out with the churches now since 1979 when I started youth ministry. I was about eight years old. When I started youth ministry in 1979, so I've been around churches for a long time. I've always been amazed at how people can allow a lot of turmoil in their families and stay connected to their family, but they can't do that in the church. They think we're perfect human beings. Really, illusions about human nature and illusions about the church. We are human, just like everybody else. I'll see people stick with their family, but the first time, I, I literally, in my Shelby church, I knew a family who left us over, the, over and this is almost a cliche, they literally left us over the, over the new carpet we put in the sanctuary. It doesn't take, now most people would not, I hope you don't do that with your families. I hope. I hope you don't flee from your family as soon as there's a little debate or something. But again, the church, look at the history of the church. Look at who we are. Read the New Testament, the book of Acts, 1 Corinthians. I mean, they were at each other's throats before they left Jerusalem. We're human. You know, if the church weren't made up of humans, it would be a wonderful place. But yeah, we're made up of human beings. We bring all of our humanness to it. And um, that's why, you know, the, we, we, as Augustine said, we probably couldn't stand the stench within if it wasn't for the bad storm out there. That's the ark. So when you got a book about a ship, you should have known going into it, ship symbolizes the church. And if you wondered about that, it's the dawn treader. It's treading the dawn, the new day. So here they're going into the storm, going into a storm. Um, you know, I, I, I just would love to read through all of Eustace's diary entries. Um, as I said before, I don't like Eustace, but he sure is entertaining. Um, but one thing I will point out, because I brought it up last time, I mentioned to you that C.S. Lewis kept a diary for a while, like a lot of Victorian and Edwardian people. He kept a diary for a while. 
but he completely stopped when he converted to Christianity because he was afraid it would make him too self-absorbed. So he quit keeping a diary. Academically um, and historically, we wish he'd kept a detailed diary. His brother kept keeping one and has been helpful to those of us who study C.S. Lewis. But C.S. Lewis was afraid that it, it would be too self-centered, too self-absorbed to keep writing a diary. Well, you see Eustace here. It's, his self-absorption, his whininess, his complaining, his self-centeredness comes out big time in, in, in his um, diary. One of the things know, though that I'll tell you so you don't miss it, because when we get to Dragon Island and the dragoning and the undragoning of Eustace, that's his conversion and his baptism, after that he keeps no more diary. So there's 10 entries to his diary up through this chapter. Um, his diaries are entertaining. I will leave those with you. Um, yeah, he's, he's entertaining, but he's not pleasant. Um, you know, there, there's fascinating things he says in his diary. You know, like on September the 8th, which is page 74. Um, and I really want you to see this because, again, I want, to, I want you to really see Lucy. Um, September the 8th, still selling east. I stay in my bunk all day now and see no one except Lucy till the two fiends come to bed. Yeah, he thinks they're all fiends. And, you know, they, 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 there's a, there's, they're rationing water. And, anyway, it's a tough time on the boat. And, of course, with Eustace's personality, a tough time for him becomes a horrible time for everybody else um, because of his act, attitude and because of his actions. Well, you know, he's not happy with um, his ration of water. And, of course, that just makes him complain more. I'm sure you don't know anybody like Eustace. Makes him complain more. Uh, Lucy then, and he even kind of, he, he's running a fever, which probably everybody else on the ship is too, because of near dehydration. He, but he's running a fever, and that's the only fever he's paying attention to. So he, 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 he really believes because he's sick, he should get more water. And you see, you know, when one of the fiends, um, you know, gives him her water. Lucy, Lucy gives me a little of her water ration. She says girls don't get as thirsty as boys. I had often thought this, but it ought to be more generally known at sea. I don't think that's true. That's Lucy being Lucy. That's like, you know, um, a parent giving up some food, saying she's not or he's not hungry. So the children can get it. Yeah, that's Lucy. Again, we, I wanna, when we grow up, we need to be a mixture of Lucy and Reaper Cheap. Um, but even, even Lucy's kindness cannot be received well by Eustace. He, he knew girls didn't need as much water as boys. And that should be more generally known, particularly at sea, when there's a, sh a shortage of water. Anyway, they sail into Dragon Island, what we're going to eventually call Dragon Island. Um, it's, it's a mountainous, craggy island. Uh, it looks like a Norwegian fjord. You're, you saw there, you see Pauline's, Pauline Bain's picture on page 76 of my edition. It's not a hospitable island. It looks, you know, it is uninhabited, basically, uh, except for wild goats. Some wild goats and um, um, uh, some, some swine, pigs. 
Um, but of course, you're going to find somebody really interesting, something really interesting there. But anyway, they sail in to the security of the harbor there. Again, keep in mind the picture of the ship as the church. There's storms, there's lack of storms, there's safer places than others. Um, Here's a beautiful picture of the church in this age at the bottom of page 77. Um, About two-thirds of the way down in the last paragraph on page 77, that starts out, For the dawn treader herself, think church, for the dawn treader herself, and this was more obvious now that they saw her at a distance, this is after they got the ship, went on the land, could hardly be recognized as the same gallant ship which had left Narrow Haven. She looked like a crippled, discolored hulk, which anyone might have taken for a wreck. And her officers and crew were no better, lean, pale, red-eyed from lack of sleep and dressed in rags. Yeah, the church in this age is rather beat up. That's, that's what selling through the church age looks like. By the way, um, in a church, according to traditional language, where the pews are, you know, got the chancel up front, where altar, pulpit, lectern is behind the chancel rail. That's the chancel. The area where the pews are, and it's not sanctuary, the area where the pews are, what's the historic name for that section? Nave. Thank you. It's the nave. You know, if, if I want to be hard to get along with and I tell you, meet me in the nave, I'm doing that just if you know what the nave is. That's where the pews are. The word nave comes from the Latin word for ship. Again, don't lose sight that the ship is an image of the church. We call that area where the pews are the nave. So you've got a narthex, a nave, and a chancel. I bet you didn't expect to learn that this morning. So you know something about, and you're facing east. So you, you know something about church architecture now. Anyway, so yeah, don't lose sight of the church as a vessel. We, we are only going to get out of this world alive um, through the ship, through the ship. Um, we, we are beaten and we are battered. Again, that's the ship in the church age. Don't have any illusions. That's why I'm not fond. I do it all the time. I say it every day. I, I'd rather, I'm a little nervous with the use of the word sanctuary to talk about our building. I mean, I know where it goes to historically, you can't arrest people if they're in the sanctuary, but theoretically. So I, I'm a little nervous about the word sanctuary, um, about the church, because sometimes when they hear the word sanctuary, they think that means where they're not supposed to be touched by life. You know, a, a place to flee from reality. And sometimes it's really nice when it feels like a sanctuary, but again, we know the history of the church. We've been doing this for 2,000 years now. So we know about how battered and beaten the church is. Um, you know, go sing the hymn, uh, The Church is One Foundation. It talks about how we're, we're, we are torn asunder by heresies and how we're battered and we're beaten. That, that's been our, I mean, it starts in the New Testament. It's continued ever since. The hard journey we're making through this life. 
because the world will not cooperate with us. The world will persecute us. Jesus promised this. So again, think about the storm. Think about the dawn treader as a picture, as a picture of, of, the, of the church. Um, as before we get out of this, look at page 79 up at the top. Show you something else. Go C.S. Lewis. This is just a couple pages before the end of the chapter, uh, page before the next um, Pauline Bain sketch. Um, again, C.S. Lewis knows what the church, you know, how the ship, particularly one named the Dawn Treader, symbolizes the Christian community or the church. Um, notice what it says about Eustace, as it, you, know, uh, you know, as a result of he's getting off the boat. This showed, by the way, and he's talking about, you know, he's on the grass, slippery, but manageable. He used his hands as well as his feet. And though he panted and he mopped his forehead a good deal, he plugged away steadily. This showed, by the way, that his new life, little as he suspected it, had already done him some good. Physically, spiritually, you know, he's got some energy, has done him some good. The old Eustace, Harold Nalberta's Eustace, would have given up the climb after about 10 minutes. So even the complaining, annoying, negative Eustace is benefiting from being on the ship. You know, that's part of the grace of God. You know, that's put yourself in those places where Jesus is happening. Put yourself in those places where scriptures proclaim, the gospels proclaim, the sacraments are observed. And even if it's against your will on most days, it'll do you some good. It'll do you some good. Hang out with, um, you know, God's peculiar children, the church, and it will do you some good. Um, you know, again, I, I, I'm fascinated by these people who look from the outside into the church. And, and, and you know, they say, oh, there's, there's hypocrites in the church. Well, yeah, I don't know a human being that's not a hypocrite. If, if, unless you're a human being that 100% of the time, 100% meets your, your own desired standards for life then yeah, there's hypocritical side to you. For every human being, what we want to be, we don't quite reach up to what we ought to be. Unless you, now, now if you want to really dumb down what your standard is, well, maybe you reach that and you're not a hypocrite. But hopefully what we hope to be is always beyond what we're living out. So that's almost the definition of a hypocrite. Unless you, but, but you should know you're a hypocrite. Well, the bad thing about hypocrites are all those hypocrites out there that talk about us being hypocrites, and they're more hypocritical than we are. At least we know we need to be cleaned up. We know we need help. We know we don't meet our standard. We know we need grace. We know we need worked on from each other. We know we need each other in, in our hypocrisy. Yeah, the people outside the church, to be a human means you're hypocritical. Unless you have so dumbed down your desire for life that you haven't even got, you have no concern left to do better. Uh, and I hope no human beings are in that situation, but I'm sure there are. So, you know, just being in this ship with a bunch of hypocrites um, will serve you good. But again, don't, don't lose. If it wasn't for the storm out there, we wouldn't be able to stand the stench in here, as Augustine said. That's the ark. That's the ark.
And inside the ark, there's about as much diversity and weirdness as all the different animals that Noah had. And, you know, some of those animals on the ark did not get along with each other. Some of them wanted to eat each other, I'm sure, on the ark. So, again, make sure, you know, one of my things, one of the things I believe that Anglicans and Roman Catholics do better than most Protestants is they have a good ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is just your theology of the church. When I was on the Board of Ordained Ministry for a long time interviewing candidates with seminary degrees, I would say, um, tell me who the church is. Well, they would rax eloquent in good Protestant fashion about what the church does. Now, I let them do that a little while. And then I'd say, okay, I didn't ask you what the church does. Tell me who the church is. Who are we by nature? And then they would, you know, look at me like, you know, oh my goodness, the board ordained ministry is going to flunk me because I don't know who the church is. And I would say, well, think about creeds. Think about the New Testament. One, holy, Catholic, apostolic, bride of Christ, the mystical body of Christ, the, all these images that get at who we are. We're the bride of Christ. What does that mean to be the bride of Christ? What does that mean to be the body of Christ? We're the only physical presence Jesus has in this world. That's why the New Testament calls us the body of Christ. Uh, the mystical body. Yeah, Protestants are so pragmatic. They can tell me what church, the church is supposed to do. They talk about mission and feeding the poor and preaching the gospel. And I let them do that. And I say, okay, Tim, I'm not asking you what we do. Who are we? And then, you know, some of them come out of churches, you know, like in the Nicene Creed. You, you profess in the Nicene Creed, the church is one holy Catholic and apostolic. And I say, just unpack those words for me. And you'll be getting at who the church is. What does it mean to be one? Well, it means whether you're on this world or in heaven, we're still part of the same group. We're one. We're holy. What does it mean to be holy? We are the chosen, called out people of Jesus Christ. We're holy not because of who we are. We're holy because of who he is and because we have been set apart for a purpose. One holy Catholic. What's Catholic mean? Universal. Christian orthodoxy is whatever has been, this is our classic definition, whatever has been believed by all Christians in all places at all times. You know, if we come up with something unique here in High Point, that the rest of the world, there's issue with that. We are Catholic, little c, one holy Catholic. And what does it mean to be apostolic? It means we are the line that comes out of the apostles. We didn't just invent this stuff last year. You know, we don't create anything. We pass on what we've been handed. That's what it means to be apostolic. If you ever catch me creating something new in the pulpit, throw me out. We are apostolic. We are just to pass on what we have received, the Apostle Paul says. So, yeah, we, Protestants need a better ecclesiology. Who is the church? You know, that's why Protestants can take it or leave it so easily. Um, that's why when you, when you define who the church is, it is a serious question that comes from church history. Is there any salvation outside the church? 
Well, the short answer is no. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to be a member of a particular denomination, but if you're not in the body of Christ, in the mystical body of Christ, if you're not part of the bride of Christ, yeah, you're outside. So anyway, work on your ecclesiology, Protestants, particularly Protestants. Work on your ecclesiology. Who is the church? And, and when, you, when you learn the biblical Christian theological definition of the church as the people of God and what all that means, then you can't put yourself in a place where you can take it or leave it as easily as modern American Protestants do. I would love to do Christianity with all the bothers, without all the bothersome people, but that, that's, there's no such thing. You can't take Jesus without taking his body which is logic if you stop to think about it. You can't take Jesus without the people he brings with him. Now, there are days I wish I could. I'd have figured out a way by now. You know, that's why these people who want to be spiritual without organized religion, what they're saying to me is they want to be spiritual but don't want to be bothered by people. Well, again, we all want that. Some of the people who want to be spiritual without organized religion, they don't even want to be bothered by God. They just want to do what they think their spirituality wants them to do. Yeah, people's, people are important to God. I assume you've picked up on that one. People are important to God. That's why the church is the people of God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. So uh, the vessel. I think somewhere, I'm going to show my ignorance here, Wesley Memorial people. We've got that same engraved image of the ship in our architecture, right? Where's it at here? I see it. I have the memory. We have a big campus with a lot of beautiful artwork on it. Um, anyway, somebody tell me, because I'm sure I walk by it multiple times every day. But I bet you there's an engraving of the, the ship, like I used to walk under at Duke Divinity School here on campus somewhere, because I can't believe that. I mean, you know, for instance, in your chapel, you've got an engraving in the center of all the windows of the symbols that stand for uh, the four Gospels. They're there in the chat. So I'm, I'm sure there's a symbol of the ship somewhere on this campus. Anyway, so don't miss the Dawn Treader being a ship uh, making its way toward Aslan's world. Um, it's pretty obvious in the book what that's about. So that's why this whole story is about the spiritual journey, especially the scene of Reba Chief. Okay, let's wrap up. Um, I'm only going to get you a little bit into chapter 6 because we're going to hang out in 6 and 7. And 6 and 7 is, is Eustace has wandered away from uh, the rest of the voyagers of, on the dog treader. He's wandered away from them. Um, he's wandered away. He's going, to, he's going to come upon a dragon. Now, if you look um, on my edition, page 84, um, something was crawling. He's, he's watching something move. Something was crawling. Worse still, something was coming out of the cave. Edmund or Lucy or you would have recognized it at once, but Eustace had read none of the right books. Every chance C.S. Lewis has to take a pot shot at modern education, he does. Um, yeah, Eustace doesn't know anything about dragons and King Arthur 
and all the medieval mythology. He doesn't know anything about that. So he, he, he doesn't quite know this a dragon coming out. Um, but if, next paragraph. Oh, by the way, the word dragon comes from the Greek, Greek word drakon. It means one who watches. That's what a dragon is, one who watches. What is this dragon watching? Treasure. Yeah, he's watching treasure. Watching by means of guarding. He's guarding or watching treasure. But that's what the word dragon means. Dra dragons usually have something that they're protecting or guarding or, or watching. So this dragon was. So this dragon comes out, and as you watch the dragon, uh, it says, even in his fear, Eustace felt that it was an old, sad creature because this dragon comes out and does what? Dies. Yeah, the dragon comes out and dies. Well, um, Eustace just kind of stared at it for a while because, again, he's not read the right books. He doesn't know all about dragons. He, he just kind of stares at it a while. And then, um, you know, the sun goes down, and he finds his way into the dragon's lair. And again, on top of page 87, most of us know what we should expect to find in a dragon's lair. But as I said before, Eustace had read only the wrong books. They had a lot to say about exports and imports and governments and drains, but they were weak on dragons. Again, he's the, the modern emphasis on pragmatism, the modern emphasis on practicality. You know, moderns, moderns think that the only purpose of education is to get a good job. Please rid yourself of that concept. The purpose of education is to become an educated person. Just like the purpose of prayer is not what you get out of it. The purpose of prayer is to become a prayerful person. But we in the modern world, you know, postmodernism, as we call it now, um, kind of in the scientific age, materialistic age, everything around us is just good for utilitarian purposes. That's why we don't do art either. You know, we'd really have a better mousetrap than good art. Well, again, C.S. Lewis is reacting against it. That's why he says, Eustace's books, we've talked about exports, imports, governments, and drains, sewers. We talk about sewers, um, but they were weak on dragons. Yeah, he doesn't know, he doesn't know the richness of Western civilization. Um, so he, he doesn't understand until he walks in there, goes in the uh, dragon's lair, and he finds the treasure. Again, you expect to find the dragon guarding something, the dragon watching over something, and it's, it's treasure. So um, as soon as he sees the treasure, bottom page 87, Eustace, unlike most boys, had never thought much of treasure, but he saw at once the use of it. Uh, the, the use it would be in this new world, which he had so foolishly stumbled into through the picture in Lucy's bedroom at home. And then he's speaking. They don't have any tax here, he said, and you don't have to give you don't have to give treasure to the government. With some of this stuff, I could have quite a decent time here. Perhaps in Calderman, that's another region. It sounds at, at the least phony of these countries. I wonder how much I can carry greed. Here's where we can talk one of the, of the, one of the seven deadly sins because he's going to go in where I'm going to leave you at this week. He goes in 
He falls asleep at the end of the paragraph on page 88. He falls asleep on the treasure. That's what's... He's going to be dragoned. He's going to wake up as a dragon. And Aslan's going to have to undragon him. So what leads to the dragoning of Eustace is one of the... One of the seven deadly sins in Christian tradition, greed. I don't know that we talk about greed being a sin, much less one of the seven deadly sins. So if you do have your Bible, I'll, I'll, I'll end with a few. You know, there, there's a lot of reasons, just to kind of give you this out there. There's a lot of reasons why, like for instance, the Methodist church, a lot of churches, we are opposed to lotteries and gambling, even for entertainment purposes. Our book of discipline is really clear on that. We get weird on other stuff, but we're clear. No lotteries, no gambling, even for entertainment purposes. Um, and that's a hard sell in this culture. You know, that feels puritanical, that feels petulant to say no gambling. You know, you cannot have, by the way, and I like to say this because every church I've had does this. And I literally say, don't tell me if you do this. But the book of discipline says you cannot do a raffle because it's gambling. Now, again, in this culture, it's a hard sell. Nobody understands that in this culture because we don't talk about greed or the Protestant or the Christian work ethic. We don't do about e we don't talk about either anymore. So if we just quit talking about the Protestant work ethic or the work ethic, a Christian work ethic, and, and quit talking about greed, well then nobody has a clue why we have all this stuff in Christian tradition. In, in the home in which I'm not saying you have to do this. I love to play um, uh, several card games. I love to play several card games, which is great because I, I, I inherited playing card games when I married Tammy's into Tammy's family. They're, they are strong card players. and they, they, you know, I love playing card games with them, hand and foot, uh, spades. The issue is they want to play way too long. I give it an hour or so. They'll go for hours. In the home in which I was raised and in Tammy's grandparents' house, to kind of show you our culture, we could have rook cards, but not cards that were used in gambling. There's been a big shift on this, but you know, as the Christian community, we don't preach about greed. We don't preach about the Christian work ethic. If anybody knows any reason why to even wonder about a lottery, it sometimes, if I push you and say why, you know, what I usually get out of contemporary Christian is they may get to the point of saying something to me about it is harmful to the poor, because it, it almost becomes a tax on the poor, the ones who can least afford to do that for entertainment. Um, but anyway, the reason all that's part of Christian tradition is we used to preach about greed. We used to preach about uh, the work ethic. Uh, in our stained glass windows upstairs, we may be one of the few churches, we've got the devil in our stained glass window, but every time I say devil, I, I'm real quick to say what it is, is it a, it is a green demon it is the demon mammon, greed, 
and you see it in the stained glass window. If I'm in the pulpit, it's on the lectern side, maybe three windows from the back. At ground level, which is why I'm surprised nobody notices it, at ground level, it's a green demon, and green includes envy, greed, avarice. It's a green demon. You actually see a human being worshiping the green demon in our stained glass windows. But we don't preach about greed. We don't preach about Christian work ethic. We don't. So, um, yeah, we need to talk more about greed. It's one of the seven deadly sins. Let me give you some biblical text. Um, these, these, you will know these. You can, well, you're welcome to turn to them, but some of you will, will know these texts real well from uh, Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, um, verse 19 and following, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is your heart, there your heart will be also. Eustace lays down on his treasure, so don't be surprised when he wakes up and he's a dragon. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. Where your heart is, that's your treasure. Uh, jump to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Um, another one that you probably have got memorized. What is the root of all evil? Love of money. You may not know that's in First Timothy. It's in First Timothy chapter six, begins at verse verse ten. And I'm going to read it because I want you to read. I want you to hear the rest of that verse. For the love of money, it's not just money, but for the love of money, is a root of all kinds of evil. All kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Yeah, make sure you remember the rest of the verse. The love of money is the root of all evil. It's from this craving that many have wandered away from the faith. Um, so you got Eustace here. He's found the dragon's treasure. He goes to, he doesn't hardly know what a dragon is, but he knows what treasure is. He knows how he can use treasure. He knows how he can, you know, change his life. So he lays down and he's going to wake up. He's going to take a while for him to realize it. He's going to wake up and he's going to be a dragon. And so uh, one of my favorite parts of this book is the, the undragoning of Eustace. The dragoning and then the undragoning of Eustace. Uh, so, um, yeah, for next week, rest of chapter 6 and 7. An amazing part of the book. Outside of the Bible and great Christian theologians like Augustine and John Wesley and Martin Luther and people like that, I don't know of a better place to read about the work of Jesus Christ in our, Christ in our lives as in chapter 6 and 7 of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So pay close attention to it is Aslan that has to undragon Eustace and pay close attention to what undragoning entails. Um, but an amazing part of the book. But yeah, he's laid down on his treasure. 
And um, one night's sleep on that treasure, one night's sleep with greed doing its work, he, he's going to wake up as a beast. He's going to wake up as a dragon. So, uh, you owe me about 13, no. You owe me a lot of minutes. Don't make me do math. You owe me a lot of minutes. We're going to stop. Let's pray. Let's, let's, let's pray together.